Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 178. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I've got two crime action films from non-English speaking countries. The first one is a fantastic Seijin Suzuki Yakuza crime film from 1962 which has the best title I've heard in a very long time and that is Detective Bureau 23 Go to Hell Bastards starring Joe Shishido. And then we go to 1972 for a Fernando de Leo um, action, crime action film from Italy starring the incomparable Mario Adorf. And that, of course, is La Mala Ordina, also known as The Italian Connection, which also stars Henry Silva, Woody Strode and Adolfo Celli. Um, that one's very good as well. It just both balls-to-the-wall action film. So I'm going to get the contact details out of the way. I want to get back... I'll start talking movies. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. Hi everybody, and yes, it is 2016. We've all made it this far. Everyone pat yourselves on the back. 2016, for some reason, seems a lot more futuristic than 2015 to me. I don't know why, but just seeing that written down and seeing it... um, I'll explain. There's across from my office building where I work. There's a display on another office building, which gives you the date, and then it gives you the time, then it gives you the temperature. And seeing the date as January 2016 on that flat screen display attached to the side of a building, for some reason, seems incredibly futuristic to me. 2016, um, congratulations to us all. But um, we're talking about old things. We're not talking about new things. This, of course, being Paleo Cinema Podcast, movies more than 20 years old. And these two definitely uh, cover that. I've really got to do a few things. I've got to thank a few people before I go any further. First off, thank you to Steve Sullivan for being very patient with me. I didn't get your name on the credits. I've sent you a message now to find out what particular credit you'd like. I seem to have lost that detail, and I apologize. Slackness on my part. Um, I'd like to thank Eric Peterson as well, and somebody called Skyrocker also donated to the podcast via the Patreon page. So... To all the Patreon subscribers, thank you very much. I really appreciate the donations. And they help me acquire new movies of which I may speak on the podcast. For instance, some of the money last time around, I picked up a copy of The Hidden Fortress, the movie uh, that George Lucas cribbed from a lot to make Star Wars. And I hadn't didn't have a copy of it, so I thought, I'm going to go legit. This is Kurosawa. I want to do the right thing. So I purchased a copy of that. One of the other films I got with the money, uh, apart from paying for the podcast hosting, was another movie I want to do in a future podcast, which is going to be really cool. And that's The Sicilian Clan with Jean Gabon in it. I couldn't find a decent copy anywhere illicitly on the web, so I ponied up and through the magic of eBay, picked up a copy for about eight bucks, including postage. So I'm quite pleased with that, and I'm waiting for that one to arrive because I do want to see the Sicilian clan. The other person I've got to thank is Grant Watson for suggesting one of the movies for this podcast. Grant, um, I will put a link up to Grant's Fiction Machine Patreon deal where he does movie reviews, and he suggested that I check out Direct Detective Bureau 23 Go to Hell Bastards. Um, I wasn't actually going to do it in the podcast, I was going to do a different film, but as soon as I watched this film, I went, what the fuck, and decided that I'm going to do it for the podcast, so thank you very much to Grant as well. And also, thanks to my mate Jamie, um, who doesn't have a social media presence. 
And Jamie suggested way back when he lent me a copy of Branded to Kill the Sajin Suzuki movie, which I did uh, talk about on an earlier podcast. But uh, thanks to Jamie for that. I actually gave Jamie a copy of Detective Bureau 23 Go to Hell Bastards in return for this. So um, what goes around comes around. So um, anyway, on to what I've been watching. There's only a couple of films I've been watching, which is a bit of a shame, but um, blame the Xbox. I am. And uh, both of them are interesting in their own way. There's a William Castle movie that very few people know about because it's very early in the career of William Castle. And it's a very small scale kind of slightly film noir crime thing set in the old Charlie Chaplin movie studios which were torn down in the late 1950s. I think I mentioned that uh, Murder by Contract was filmed partly there. And there's a movie called Hollywood Story starring Richard Conti and Julie Adams and uh, a few other interesting things. It's not really very good, but um, being a kind of William Castle completist, I saw it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of very much a B-actioner. There's no real surprises in it. Uh, the directing is competent without being kind of wonderful. And um, so, I, so I watched that. Uh, the other thing I watched is a rewatch of Fred Decker's movie from the late 1980s, The Monster Squad, which is about a bunch of kids who get involved with Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, the wolf man, the creature from the Black Lagoon, all of that kind of stuff. And um, partly scripted by Shane Black of great renown. And it holds up well, even if the special effects aren't quite up to 21st century standards, which, of course, being a late 1980s film, they wouldn't be. It's very much um, an interesting film, and it's nice to revisit it as well. Uh, it's There's nothing there that's kind of dated as far as people are concerned. You know how sometimes you see a kid's movie from an earlier era, and you go, what the fuck were they thinking? Kids aren't like that. That's a rotten way to treat a kid not too much of that in this one but um yeah it was a nice revisit and there was a kind of a little bit of a popcorn flick to watch um so nothing else uh the other thing i should mention is that i am going to see the hateful eight on the big screen 70 millimeter super panavision at the astor cinema here in melbourne which is one of the cinemas that's actually showing it on film rather than digital projection so me and um, Morris from Love That Album are going to rock up there with a couple of other people. And we're going to see it on Saturday, which is going to be very sweet. Looking forward to doing that. And I'll let you know how it goes, because uh, the Hateful Eight three-hour movie, incredibly widescreen, in a cinema, I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of it. And uh, very much looking forward to it. So that's about it for what I've been watching. Uh, I'm going to take a break now, and when I get back going to talk about the first of the two movies which is Seijin Suzuki's movie um, done with for Nikatsu Studios and it is Detective Bureau 23 Go to Hell Bastards from 1963 <laughs> Stranger, it seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? Seems like a mighty long time. It seems like a mighty long Oh, yes, I'm so 
with Hello Stranger, which is very cool. I like that Hammond organ bit at the start. Okay, so let's get on to Detective Bureau 23, Go to Hell Bastards, which is, again, the wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful title. It's a Yakuza film from 1963, directed by Seijin Suzuki. It stars frequent uh, contributor to Seijin Suzuki movies, Joe Shishido, um, and Reiko Sasamori, Tamio Kawachi, and Nobuo Kanero. Um, now, this movie is part of Nikazu Studios' borderless action cinema, they called it. And it was the uh, first part of a series which ended after the second instalment, according to Wikipedia. Now, I don't have a lot of detail about the history of Nikazu Studio. I really should do a little research. I'm sure people suggest books about um, Japanese Yakuza movies from the 1960s, if there are any out there. And I'll see what I can do to locate them and read them, because it does seem like an interesting time in Japanese cinema. And a lot of the location shooting in this film also shows that post-war industrialization of Japan, which is really interesting to see the cars, the westernized clothing that people wore, the um, factories and um, train lines and all sorts of other things. It's quite an interesting um, film from that point of view as well. There are some nice textures there. Some of it's shot on location, some of it's obviously in studio. Now, since I said that last sentence, I've actually done some research on research on Nikatsu Studios. Now, there were two studios predominantly in Japan in the early 1960s that were doing uh, Yakuza movies. The first one was Toei, which did rock-solid adult um, Yakuza movies. And there was Nikatsu, which did movies for younger people. So they uh, kind of had younger, kind of teenage and, and young 20s kind of movies, but they were sometimes Yakuza movies as well, which is one of the reasons why um, Detective Bureau 23, Go to Hell Bastards, has a lot of music and dancing in it. And the people in it, particularly the females and the young male actors, wear a lot of kind of contemporary early 1960s stylish clothing, particularly Joshua Shido's character. Now, the plot of the film is fairly simple, but uh, the uh, way it plays out isn't necessarily that. Joshua Shido plays Tajima, a private detective who has his own company called Detective Bureau 23. When um, I'm reading this from uh, a website, DVD Talk, when warring criminal gangs go overboard by robbing U.S. military munitions, Tajima steps in to stop what the cops can't. Now, the cops can't stop this because the bad guys have a list of all of the police and what they look like. They have a copy of the police ref- records book, so they have to bring in an outsider. In this case, it's Tajima, played by Joe Shishido, who um, runs his own agency and isn't part of the cops, so therefore he won't be identified as a cop if he goes undercover to infiltrate the gang that has robbed the military, if that's clear to you. Now, what the way he's going to um, infiltrate him is when they did rob the military convoy, which is an incredibly good action scene, by the way, which has, amongst other things, a Pepsi-Cola van full of Pepsi-Cola bottles, which is used to hide guys with machine guns. So when the guys fire the machine guns, all the Pepsi-Cola bottles start exploding everywhere out of the truck. It's it's quite an evocative little scene and very well played. It's imaginative and a lot of fun. But anyway, um, one of the guys was captured, and his name is Manabe. And Tajima decides that what he's going to do is take Manabe out of the police station, get him away, and then use him as an entree to the criminal gang. 
There's a problem, though, because the police station is surrounded by two different groups of criminals, um, two different criminal gangs who are sitting outside in pickup trucks and things like that, all with hunting rifles, some with samurai swords. The hunting rifle ones are legal because they have hunting licenses and they haven't actually used them illegally yet. But the cops know the minute they try to take Manabe out of the place, then all hell will break loose. (laughs) There are a lot of them too. There's got to be like 50 or 60 guys waiting outside this police station. And they, there's a very chaotic scene when eventually, through the chaos, Tajima gets uh, Manabe out of the police station in his little white sports car, which is very cool. Takes him away and uses him as an entree into the criminal gang. Now, um, Tajima has a couple of people working for him in the agency who sit there almost like a Greek chorus and comment on the action that they see on the TV screens as news broadcasts go. And one of them is a kind of goofy guy and one of them is a kind of quirky small woman who seems to be a lesbian uh, because she seems to be attracted to a lot of the women who are in the movie at various times. But, um, yeah, so they're they're kind of there for comic relief in a way. But the cool thing is Joe Shishido playing uh, Tajima. He's very cool, and he's got a weird style of acting now. I don't know how much of this is actually the way Japanese acting was in this kind of a movie at the time. But his facial expressions change a lot. He can go from being really cool to being shit-scared in a moment, and then back again and uh confused and, and then yeah there are a lot of he goes through a lot of emotions this guy in a very short period of time as various adverse things happen to him now joe shishida find a very interesting actor for a couple of reasons one of which is when he first started out with nakatsu studios in about 1954 wasn't very popular and then he did something very unusual he went and got cheek implants so if you see the pictures of joe shishida in um, Detective Bureau 23, Go to Hell Bastards, and I love saying that title, you'll see that he has kind of chipmunky-looking cheeks. That was a deliberate choice he made. He had implants done to make him his face look more rugged, according to Japanese standards of beauty at the time. And he's been very honest about it as well. There's a recent interview with him with, where he, he blatantly honest saying, yes, that's exactly what I did then to kind of give my face more structure and more shape and to um, make himself more marketable as an actor. Which isn't to say he's not a talented actor. He is very good. He's very good in the physical stuff too. There's a bit where he's doing a push-up on a chair um, when he's imprisoned at first by the gangsters who have stolen the military weapons. There are a couple of bits when he and the, um, the female protagonist who is actually the Yakuza boss's mistress sort of because the, they find out as the story progresses and she starts sharing with Jima that the guy's actually impotent and she hasn't been his lover except in a kind of titular sense but anyway he has to climb out of a cellar where they're trapped and the bad guys have been pouring fuel oil down a um a kind of shoot in the ceiling of the basement and then set it on fire. And that's quite a graphic thing because there's a kind of flamethrower effect of the oil, uh, burning oil coming out of the roof of the building. And the way Tajima manages to get the news out that he and the girl are trapped down there and that the place is on fire is quite imaginative as well. They're in a basement with a whole bunch of military weapons in, a, um, in crates and he uses them to kind of well, I'm not going to spoil it, but anyway, it's a very cool scene. Now, one of the things Seijin Suzuki did, which um, Joshua Shado said in this interview that I read, is that he had to, a lot of action stuff to do. And he wanted to make it more imaginative. He didn't want to just do a standard Yakuza actioner with the, with the mandatory nightclub scenes and all the rest of it. He wanted to do something a bit different. So what he did was he'd get together with a whole crew in the morning before they started shooting. And they'd kind of brainstorm how to make the action sequences interesting. And everybody would spend the first part of the day sitting around talking with each other and kind of working out, okay, well, we've got this scene to do. How are we going to make this interesting? What can we do? So they kind of crowdsourced 
the action. And, uh, and to be honest with you, it worked really well for this movie. Uh, the movie's imaginative, crazy. It's it's just over the top and a lot of fun. But I think that collaborative thing that Seijun Suzuki brought to it when um, due to... I mean, there wasn't a large budget movie, so they would have had time constraints and financial constraints. So they were trying to look for lateral ways of getting a really good story told. And the collaborative thing seems to work. Of course, it didn't go, sit well with Nikatsu Studios. And eventually, in after Branded to Kill, which the studio hated, even though it's the most famous Seijun Suzuki movie now, um, Suzuki was sacked by the studio a, a couple of years later. So was uh, Joe Shishida. But um, I, I love the fact that they did that and they wanted to make such a good movie that they did get everybody together and get input from all of the people on set, whether it was a set designer, whether it was a lighting man, a cameraman, whoever came up with a good idea, that was what worked. And this movie pays off in that. There are a number of great action sequences in this one. And there's a fantastic, totally bug-fuck crazy dance sequence as well. Uh, For those of you who've seen Ex Machina, there's a a totally off-the-wall dance sequence in that movie which does show you that one of the characters is bugfuck crazy. Now, in this one, there's a dance sequence as well, which actually carries the plot forward. Um, An ex-girlfriend of uh, Tajima's is in one of the nightclubs that he's in, pretending to be the new guy in the um, Yakuza mob. And she recognises him, and she's probably going to give away who he is if he's not careful. So she's kind of playing up to him during this song and dance number, which is a kind of Charleston 1920s influence sort of thing. And in order to tell her not to give away his identity, he becomes a part of the dance. And so he gets up there, and he and the girl are singing the lines of the song to each other, and he kind of gets her aside and tells her not to give things away while doing a song and dance number, totally impromptu from having been uh, someone sitting in the audience in a snappy sharkskin suit with a whole bunch of Yakuza guys. And it's crazily good. It it, uh, kind of breaks the fourth wall to a certain extent and takes us out of what we thought the movie was about into this craziness of a Charleston dance number where he does a pretty good dance as well. Joshua Shida doesn't dance badly in this film. And it's crazy and probably pissed off some people but it works incredibly well because it is just so insane it reminds you that this movie is an entertainment and to just go along for the ride and then there's never a bad thing when a movie does that when it tells you that yes you're there to be entertained and then it fucking entertains you and this movie does that a lot there's a lot of gunplay in it um the there are mass um battle sequences, fight sequences, which I don't know how much they were choreographed and how much were just people going at each other, but they work kind of well. And choreographing 50 or 60 people in one action sequence isn't something that they had the ability to do because limited budgets, limited shooting schedules. So they just told people in general terms what to do and they just went to town with it. And I love that. It's got a certain raw anarchy about it. Um, a lot of the criminals in the movie have great faces as well. A lot of the character actors who were used in there. I don't have names, but you'll see them there and they are terrifically good and the acting is uniformly fine. I've got the subtitle version so you get all of the proper intonation from the different actors, including Joe Shishida. And um, I just really enjoyed this movie a lot it's um it's not going to be it may even be in one of my top lists of the year where i this sort of person to do top lists but it's fun and it took me out of a comfort zone it was reminding me that really interesting and entertaining action films you've got to reach out for them you can't just rely on um dwayne johnson and jason statham you've got to kind of go back and outwards and see the kind of wonderful craziness of this kind of cinema. And it reminds you of the fact that, yes, cinema is basically a lot of fun. It's there to entertain you. It's there to make you feel emotions, even if it's amusement and kind of what the fuckism. This movie does definitely pay off in that way 
really nicely. I'm going to get an original copy of this one. I'm determined that I'm going to go on eBay and pick up a proper paid copy of this movie because it is just such a fun action film. And I'm going to track down a lot more Seijin Suzuki action films as well because even though this one was supposed to be a, a kind of Yakuza programmer for Nikatsu Studios, that kind of originality that Suzuki desperately wanted to bring to his movies shows in this one and it's um over the top there are explosions there's action there's kissing um there's a little bit of violence there's a surprising bit where you don't get many movies where this happens and you've got i don't first off i don't condone violence against women at all anytime in real life i think it's abhorrent i grew up seeing it i hate it but there's a bit in this movie where um, Tajima punches the female, um, the, the love interest, in the stomach because he's angry with it. And you go, what the, oh, jeez, this guy is you know, crazy in a lot of ways. And it wasn't amusing, but it was surprising. And then they kind of get into a, a tender romantic thing. But that's a little bit like those things in Hollywood movies where the guy will slap the girl, the girl will slap the guy, and then they'll go and do a clinch. It's really kind of weird, almost violence as foreplay, which I don't know that would play well in a 21st century movie, but it's not inconsistent with the kind of violence between characters that happened in a lot of adventure films of the time. There's a really weird nightclub in this movie as well, which has the names in English of... Um, musicals decorating the walls and one of them they get a little bit wrong so instead of pal joey it says pal toey which i think may, it may have been a pun on toey studios who knows but um the set designs are really good even though you can tell that some of the nightclub scenes they've used a fairly small studio because of budget constraints uh they're always stylized they've got a, a really weird thing in um when after he escapes with Tajima, Manabe goes and visits his girlfriend with whom he has a kind of sadomasochistic relationship and her whole apartment is decorated, it's got bright red lighting in it and it's vividly bright red and uh, that's kind of one of those things where, again, how can we make this scene interesting? Why don't we just light her entire apartment in red and see how that plays? And that's exactly what they do. There are these little kind of moments of imagination where you know that, that they had a sequence that might have played a little bit prosaic and a little bit cliched had they not just had that one little grace note of interesting choice made in the film. And this one does that in that sequence. The musical score is very good in this one. It's by a guy called um, Harumi Ibe. And it's very cool. I'm going to play a little bit of it now underneath the rest of the talk that I do about this movie just to kind of give you an idea of the groovy theme music and uh, incidental music that they have in Detective Euro 23 Go to Hell Bastards. Now in the 1960s and 1970s, Nakatsu Studios went on to do kind of pinku movies and what they call Roman porno and a lot of the actors who worked with it previously didn't stay with the studios. But I, there's an aesthetic that I like about this film. It's something that was actually borrowed by a James Bond film. If you remember a lot of the cool sequences set in Japan in You Only Live Twice, have a slight Nikatsu Studios feel about them. The little white sports car, that kiss he drives in the movie, um, the kind of suits that Tiger Tanaka wears. The, there's a style about that particular James Bond film which reminds me a lot of the style in Detective Bureau 23 Go to Hell Bastards there's a, a kind of tight suit tough guy aesthetic about it which is kind of attractive and, and very cool and interesting and it, it works really well in an action film context I have this kind of an urban action film where the police are involved but they've got to be careful because the bad guys have so many weapons so many resources and are just yeah you know, the cops have got to be particularly clever in the world of this movie to defeat the bad guys they can't just kind of bully in and tough it out and, and 
overwhelm them. They can't do that because these bad guys are almost as smart as the cops, if not as smart as the cops. And maybe that's another kind of common theme in a lot of Yakuza movies as well. That smart criminal kind of thing. Uh, in the real world, of course, a lot of criminals are very, very stupid at the low end of things. But smart ones, of course, are in business and run corporations. But we'll leave that as just at that. But just to finalise everything, Josh Ishido, action movie god, um, very underrated. And Seijun Suzuki's action films are always worth watching. I've actually found some more of them, and I'm going to enjoy them as well. Uh, there's, there is a, a kind of hipness to them, and... an imagination whether that's collaborative in all of his movies or just in some of them I don't know but there's a a real kind of passion for telling action stories in new and inventive and at times really really crazy ways and um, that's definitely something that I enjoy I like outliers when it comes to particularly action cinema people who aren't at the centre of things, and very much Sajin Suzuki was not at the centre of Nikatsu Studios. He was the kind of in-house rebel in a lot of ways, which is ultimately why he was sacked after doing the kind of crazy, stylized, black-and-white wonderfulness of Branded to Kill. But anyway, I'm going to take a break now. And when I get back, we're going to go from Asia to Europe to look at Fernando de Leo's second film in his Milieu trilogy, which started out with Milano Calibro 9 and ended with Il Boss. And that is La Mala Ordina, also known as The Italian Connection, starring Mario Adolf, Henry Silva, Woody Strode, and Adolfo Celli. The man you've got to kill is Luca Canali. A small-time Milanese pimp. Luca Canale, have you got that? He used to be a runner for Don Vito Tresoldi. But when they decided he was too gentle for their tastes, they let him go. Now he has a crew of 10 or 12 hookers. Now, I want you to kill him in the most brutal way possible because I want it to be conspicuous, sensational. I want it to be the talk of Italy, not just Milan. I want everybody to know that two Americans came all the way from New York to look for him. And that they tracked him down and ran him into the earth like a cockroach. That they went to Milan, took over like they were running the place, and then disappeared. In other words, make it obvious that the job was commissioned by the New York bosses. There's your man, Luca Canali. That's Cyril Cusack from the start of the Italian Connection, also known as La Mala Ordina, a 1972 Italian crime thriller by Fernando De Leo, set and filmed in Milan, starring Mario Adolf, Henry Silva, Woody Strode, and Aldolfo Celli. Now, Aldolfo Celli, you remember, was um, Largo in. Thunderball. But this movie also has Luciana Paluzzi in it, who was one of the um, Bond girls in the very same movie. So it's got a little bit of that kind of James Bond thing. Luciana Paluzzi plays a woman called Eva, who, when the American hitman, played by Henry Silver and Woody Strode, go over to Italy. She's their kind of go-between. And it's a very thankless role. She All she has to do, basically, is sit around nightclubs with Henry Silver and Woody Strode and then get run over by a car. It's got to be one of the most thankless roles in um, action movie history. It really does um, not do her any justice. So the cast in this one, of course, as I said, is very good. Henry Silver, we know from our friends over at Silver and Gold Podcast. He's one of their patron saints and is titular in that podcast. Um, yeah, Henry Silver with his comb over here. He's pl- he plays... Um, one of the two hitmen, a guy called Dave Catania. Catania. And he's kind of a playboy wannabe 
um, over the top, there's a scene of him as they kind of cruise the streets of Milan and meet up with a whole bunch of street hookers, which is quite amusing in a way, and he's kind of throwing his money around and being a total dickhead, as indeed Cyril Cusack's mafia boss advises him to do. Uh, that character's name is Corso. And see, they've got an Irishman to play an Italian mafia boss from America. Who knows? But they, for some reason, they do. And, um, yeah, he, he seems to be having a lot of fun doing that. Um, there is some, there's a lot of nude women in this movie, a lot of naked breasts. The most apparent one being uh, Femi Benussi playing Nana, one of the prostitutes that Luke Canali runs in his string of prostitutes. He's not a very kind of nasty um, pimp as pimps go really yeah he isn't a nice person of course and, and this is what I really would move for a number of reasons that bit at the start with Cyril Cusack sets it all up so you don't need to know much more about the plot to kind of follow what I'm about to say but the star of the movie and, and the kind of breakout wonderful what the fuck crazy mad over the top juggernaut of the film is Mario Adolf's Luca Canali. Just after we get that bit from uh, Cyril Cusack, they have a scene where um, Luca Canali and Nana are out walking in a park and some guys give them some shit and Canali basically headbutts both guys. One guy pulls a knife and it all gets into a bit of violence and we kind of see the fact that Canali can look after himself. So that's set up right at the start of the film. But then um, we get into some stuff with the two hitmen. Now, a lot of people have said, and this may well be accurate, that the two hitmen in this movie, played by Woody Strode, with hair, a bit of a rare Woody, Woody Strode role for that reason, and Henry Silver, are the basis for Jules and Vincent from Pulp Fiction. And I can see that too. Two hitmen, one a wannabe kind of hipster, the other one a cool black guy, who's very about the job and very about being professional. I can see the influence there. and um, So that that's probably a, a, an homage that uh, Tarantino did to uh, Fernando de Leo and obviously to Woody Strode and to Henry Silver as well. Um, this movie is just crazy. There's no other way to say it. It is crazy. There's action sequences galore. There's nightclubs and kind of hippie hangouts with hopeless go-go dancers there's some really cool clothing in it um henry silver's suits are particularly good woody strode who was uh, a professional athlete and still when this movie was made in 1972 and woody strode was my age 58 he was cut he was a, a muscular guy he could move really well he was not somebody that looked like you would fuck with him at all uh, it doesn't get a lot to do as far as the, the character stuff's concerned, but um, Henry Silver tends to dominate that part. But even Henry Silver is outacted by Mario Adolf's Canali. Now, Canali, he's got a moustache, he's got a kind of mop of greased back hair, he tries to wear sharp suits, he's a kind of combination buffoon pimp in a weird way. He, he looks comical which is one of the beauties of this film, is Canali looks kind of a comical character. His pants are just that little bit too short with showing some white socks in his shoes. His suits are just a little bit tight for his kind of bulky, not chubby, but kind of bulky build. And he's one of those characters that it's easy to underestimate. But now for reasons of the $6 million in missing heroin. He has not only the Milanese Mafia after him, but the American Mafia after him. Now, the head of the Milanese Mafia is the character played by Adolfo Celli, Don Vito Tresoldi. And he's uh, kind of a blue-eyed monster. He really um, does play the role well. And I'm going to give away the plot twist here. It doesn't matter. You're going to want to see the movie anyway, but it doesn't matter. Canali didn't steal the $6 million in heroin. Don Vito Trisoldi did and set up and framed Luca Canali for the theft. So in order to get rid of a um, former employee and not very successful pimp and to divert attention away from him, 
Trisoldi tells the Americans that Luca Canali stole the heroin. And so the Americans send Woody Strode and Henry Silver over to take care of business. He's a total patsy in that sense. So while hunting down Canali, there are a couple of things that become apparent to both mafia groups fairly quickly. One is you don't fuck with Luca Canali. Second one is if you run over Luca Canali's wife and child, his wife played in a small role by Sylvia Koshina, a well-known 1960s Eurospy kind of actress, and kill them, then he will hunt you down. doesn't matter what it takes. Now, Canali sees his wife, ex, you know, his estranged wife and daughter run down by a guy in a white van. He then grabs a guy, tears him out of his car, grabs the car and starts one of the most wonderful chases in action cinema where he's in the car chasing the van trying to get this guy who killed his wife and daughter um, down the streets and along canals in Milan. He won't be stopped by anything. There's a scene where he almost gets T-boned in an intersection driving through it. The action sequence, car action sequences in this movie are just crazily dangerous looking ones. They are physically menacing. And um, based on, I did see a um, documentary about this kind of cinema. I'm just trying to see if I can see it on the shelves. About these, Euro crime it's called. The, the car chases were that dangerous. They were just, the stunt people were damaged often in this kind of Italian cinema of the 1970s. And Canali is unstoppable. First, he grabs the guy in the van. He climbs onto the side of the van. He clings to the door. He gets on the front of the van and is driven at breakneck pace around the streets of Milan while clinging to the front of this van and trying to get the guy. And then using a signature move, which is Canali's specialty, headbutts the windshield until it breaks and then grabs the guy and tries to beat him. Doesn't succeed in stopping him then. And then there's a long foot chase through a carnival and other places before he finally catches up with the guy and kills him. Now that chase sequence, which lasts a good, I don't know, 15 minutes of the film, is crazily over the top and out of this world and puts you dead on the side of Luca Canali because he's an unstoppable monster. He just won't give up, won't stop, really, even though he's immensely out of his depth, he's focused. He's a kind of... The only character you could compare him to, though, he isn't in all in character like this guy, is the Parker character played by Lee Marvin in Point Blank. He's got that kind of unstoppableness and, and implacability of Lee Marvin in Point Blank being, while being in a, a lumpy, mustachio, Milanese pimp, which is the only way I can describe it. The film does have that kind of crazy, over-the-top enjoyability about it. It's just a wonderful action film for that reason. There's a lot of violence in it. There's violence against guys. The the two guys who, uh, when the mafia first catch up with uh, Canali in a sawmill, the guys are unsuccessful because Canali headbutts them and beats them up and and leaves them unconscious on the ground, uh, and then headbutts the telephone so that nobody can call the mafia bosses and tell them what happened. There's a war matter telephone. He actually headbutts and breaks. There's a lot of headbutting being done by Luca Canali in this movie. Um, and then the Mafia catches up with him, not only the um, Americans, but also Don Vito. And Don Vito, to prove his point to the Americans, well, the Americans, to prove their point to Don Vito, shoot the two guys who have been knocked unconscious by Canali in the knees. And then Don Vito, to prove that he's tougher than the Americans, kills both of them. It's that kind of movie where things escalate and there's a lot of pissing contests going on between the different Mafia groups. But the joy of this film mostly is watching Mario Adorf, an incredibly unlikely actor to play an action hero. And the fact that he's a kind of unsuccessful pimp, who is our viewpoint character and who is our protagonist, makes it even more interesting. The, The moral high ground is not occupied by anybody in this movie. Nobody is much better than 
any of the others. But because Canali's wife and child have been there, because he was set up and because he, in leaving aside his occupation, is the wronged person in this movie, makes us really want him to do well. There are, he's very good at improvising. You can see he's out of his depth. There are times when he looks confused and bewildered by what's going on because he doesn't know that they've accused him of stealing $6 million in heroin. He just thinks he's done something to piss off the Don. And the reaction that they have to what he thinks is going on seems to be over the top. So Canali, for the first large chunk of the film, is confused by what's going on. They've threatened his family. They've killed his family. Why are they doing this when he hasn't done anything wrong? So even though he is going through these crazy action sequences and is killing mafia thugs left right and center it's still for the for a lot of the film he just doesn't know what's going on and that makes things really really interesting and uh, the character is not incredible he's not a rocket scientist but he's incredibly good at improvising he with the adrenaline in the moment is basically gives him something to kind of get ideas on how to handle the fact that he's suddenly in an incredibly awkward situation. People have tried to kill him, and he still doesn't know why. Of course, we as the audience know why, because Cyril Cusack told us right at the very start of the film why. But Canali doesn't, and that that's a kind of interesting thing. Even though he's running for his life at full pace, and seeing Mario Adolf running through the streets of Milan chasing um, mafia hitmen, He's a scary-looking fucker. Um, there is a scene where he's chasing the guy through a kind of private health spa, the outdoor areas of a health spa kind of area. And he, Mario Adolf, could run very fast. I don't know whether they undercranked or what, but it doesn't look like they did. But his Canali is just an adrenaline monster. And um, I, I love that. The unlikeliness of this guy being... The action hero in a movie is wonderful for me. It's one of those kind of pieces of casting that is very much counterintuitive and on paper probably wouldn't work. But in the movie, it very much does. And in spite of the fact that Canali is a kind of not too successful pimp, he does have some friends. He has um, a female friend who he wanted to get to um, be part of his stable, a girl called Trini Plebe Francesca Romana Coluzzi, who decided instead to become a socialist in the hippie commune and actually give shelter to Canali in the hippie commune, which where weird and, and not very logical things are going on. Um, that's kind of a sweet moment where he just kind of cuddles her and falls asleep because he's exhausted. His family's just been killed. He just, you know out of his depth and doesn't know which way Shaw is. Um, That was kind of a sweet moment there. There's also a fantastic climax to this film. The climax is really good in one of the best places to set an action sequence, of course, being a junkyard full of cars stacked up where um, Woody Strode's character and um, Henry Silver's finally corner and confront Canali. And the action sequences are good in there. It's mostly a gunfight between them. In fact, it's all a gunfight between them amongst all these wrecked cars and things with a great big grabby crane kind of thing, which is used right at the end. And there's also a weird moment and a weird extra bit. And again, this shows, it could have been a cliche, you know, the kind of final confrontation in a junkyard. That could have been a cliche. But they do one small thing which really takes it into a different area and emphasises the fact that we're on Luca Canali's side in this movie, even though he is a pimp. And that is the fact that Canali, while he's waiting for the mafia to turn up, finds a kitten in the junkyard and plays with the kitten. And various bits during the gunfight, he's trying to push the kitten aside and trying to get it to go away from him, because apart from anything else, he doesn't want it to get hurt. And it's also meeping, so the guys are going to find out where he is by the fact that the kitten is meeping at him. And then Henry Silver kills the kitten, which, fuck you, Henry Silver. I like kittens. 
which shows that the American Mafia guys have just got no limitations. They, there are things you shouldn't do, and killing kittens is one of them, but Henry Silver totally goes there and totally kills the kitten, which pissed me off because I don't like kittens being hurt, and neither did Luca Canali. Um, but I'm going to have to check out more Italian crime films. As I said, I've got The Sicilian Clan on the way, which is more an Italian-French co-production. But I really want to check out more of these films, and I'm going to have to find some more Fernando, yes, Fernando De Leo. It's a hard thing to say for some reason, Fernando De Leo. More Fernando De Leo movies to check out and enjoy, because this kind of over-the-top, no-holds-barred, crazy, and at times illogical 1970s action cinema is, for me, my kindergarten in action cinema. That This is the kind of movie that in the cheap cinemas I went to when I was a teenager working eight-hour shifts in factories and then heading off in the evening to go into the city and watch movies. This is the kind of movie that I watched. And so for me, it and I'm reluctant to make this comparison. For me, I have the same reaction to this film in some ways that other slightly younger people have seeing a Star Wars movie. I love this kind of cinema. It's something that's ingrained in me as a moviegoer to enjoy 1970s action films with the crazy fast zooms and the, and the quick cutting and the total lack of political correctness and um, the nastiness of the bad guys, the over-the-top reactions to things, car chases in old-style cars, which just by the fact that they are incredibly massive, make the car chases look incredibly more dangerous. All of that kind of stuff is is kind of you know comfort food movie watching for me. And now and then, after I've watched some quality films, I've been mean, started this year watching Jacques Demy musicals, which is great. I, I love them, and I've kind of weep when I see the umbrellas of Cherbourg. It always makes me cry. And then I'll kind of, to cleanse the palate, see a movie like this or Detective Squad 2, 3, Go to Hell Bastards and just get into a total different movie-watching headspace. These movies are a lot of fun. um, I'm not sure how much women would like them, but for guys who like action cinema, these ones are a fantastic, um, enjoyable experience. And just the the kind of the fact that there's so many comb overs in this movie as well. There's Henry Silver's comb over. There are a whole bunch of other mafia guys with comb overs. It was acceptable to comb your hair over bald spots in the 1970s, and there was a lot of it going on. We have the usual kind of things. The bottle of J&B Scotch is in there, which is a trope that I know the gentlemen of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema are very fond of. In fact, one of the things I've got on my desk, I've put together a collage of playing cards that I found in junk shops. And amongst the wild, we'll buy one and the one with the Mexican guy with the donkey and the bullfighter playing cards. I've got a J&B logo playing card looking me right in the face right now. And yep, the bottle of J&B scotch is definitely apparent in um, the Italian connection. And the other things I, I like about it are the fact that in spite of his attempts... The character played by Henry Silver is spectacularly unsuccessful with Vern. Dave just couldn't get laid at an orgy, mostly because he's um, a little too desperate and a little too entitled. He's got that sense of entitlement, which is never attractive to women. Even in the 1970s, before we were more as aware of male entitlement as we are now. And I'll just blow the candle in case you're wondering what that noise was. Um, he's... Everything about Dave as a character puts women off. He's kind of, you know, nasty, a nasty piece of work, and it's very obvious that he is. Whereas Woody Strode's character, Frank, is very much professional. It's about the business. It's about the job. You don't go messing around with girls when your job is to kill Luca Canali. And that kind of contrast between the two hitmen works really well and having the movie set and um filmed in milan gives us a different italian landscape to the usual stuff we're 
we see in Fellini movies, a kind of upmarket Rome. It's a very much a working class environment. Of course, junkyards are, are a very working class place, and the places where Canali chases the guy who ran over his wife and child are kind of semi-industrial and there's a lot of weeds around that kind of thing and that um, kind of one of the things about crime is there are two types of crime movies there are the upper class crime movies the kind of upper class crime movies which are full of laser beam alarm systems and shit like that then you've got the working class ones where things are set in industrial areas and there's a grittiness to it and the need for money is much more than a kind of academic thing for the people involved. And although for Canali that isn't the case, there is that kind of contrast between where the mafia boss played by Adolfo Celli, Don Vito, lives, and where Canali lives and hangs out. There's a kind of class differential there which makes the film a little bit more interesting. But th- this movie, All Up, is I mean obviously in the English language version it's called the Italian Connection to contrast with the recently released French Connection, but the whole movie is a kind of gritty. I'm not sure how realistic it is to the actual lives of mafiosi in Milan in the 1970s, but that doesn't particularly matter. What matters is you've got kind of some bad acting by Henry Silver. Woody Strode's a little, and you'll excuse the expression, wooden in it. But then you've got this kind of over-the-top anguish and theatrical almost acting by Mario Adorf as Canali, which is totally appropriate to the, what the guy is going through and what the character is going through. In you know, that gritted teeth, kind of pained and confused expression that he wears for a lot of the film is the, one of the expressions that people would wear in that circumstance. But again, we have the fact that this kind of low-rent pimp that everybody has kind of written off and discarded and used as a patsy suddenly proves himself to be an unstoppable killing machine with the right stimulus. And there's a momentum about him. He goes through this movie almost like one of those cartoon balls of snow that turns into an enormous house-wrecking monster. And that's Luca Canale in this film. He gains momentum and mass during the film. And starts getting respect from people because of the fact that he is so determined, so focused and so successful at killing off half of the Milanese Mafia and two American mafiosi. And the movie ends on an ambiguous note. We don't know what Luca Canali's future, if there is one, is going to be. But Mario Adolf in this film creates an incredibly memorable character with Canali. And his background and his approach to it, and the way he doesn't look like an action hero, makes the film all the better for that. It's just one of those things, kind of like um, Joe Shishado in um, Detective Bureau 2, 3, Go to Hell Bastards. He's a very unlikely hero, and I love him more for that too. It's just, this movie is just a, a hell of a lot of fun. Both of these movies are a hell of a lot of fun. They're not pretending to be more than they are. But within that kind of box of action crime cinema, they both find they kind of push the walls out somewhat, and they make a space for themselves on the eccentric end of things. And both um, Seijin Suzuki and Fernando De Leo have decided to take a format and take what was given to them, which is. Um, uh, an action cinema format and create something unique within that constraint and that's one of the reasons why I love these films anyway that's about it for this time around I'm going to now verbally do the additions to the roster for the Patreon subscribers now Steve Sullivan's website I'm going to find Steve's website I'm going to tell you about it because I owe him a big one because I forgot to put his details into the um, Patreon credits at the end of the podcast. You can find Steve's stuff and Steve's blog over at stephendsullivan.com. I am going to get Steve on the show. We're going to Skype it sometime during this year. So Steve, keep hassling me about it, but it will be there. 
And the other couple of people that I should really name check, whom I haven't had time to add to the Patreon crawl at the end of the podcast, are somebody called Skyrocker, who I haven't had any contact with, but who enjoys the podcast. Thank you very much for that. Let me know whether you'd like a credit and whether you'd like to suggest movies for the podcast, because I'm definitely up for that for our Patreon subscribers in particular, but also other people can suggest things. I can ignore those ones if they suggest, as one of my Patreon subscribers did, and I've talked to her about this. She suggested I do Star Wars movies, but I actually did that at one stage. And also um, Thomas Brookler, who made a donation to the podcast as well. Um, thank you very much to those people. Thank you to everybody who listens as well, because you're spending time with my not to dulcet tones in your ears and, and people seem to enjoy it which is something incredibly mystifying to me but I'm very much appreciative of but anyway in the meantime everybody look after yourselves take care if you're in the cold climates stay warm if you're down here stay hydrated and cool I'm going to be back next week with a Martian Driving podcast and then in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. Keep watching good films. Watch good films, watch bad films, watch Luke and the Canali, but not Luke Skywalker. And I'll be back very soon with another episode. So take care of yourselves and I'll see you later, okay? And here are the credits for the Patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin the Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia our Casting Director, Chris our Camera Operator, Christopher our Gaffer, Miss Jane our Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy the Foley Artist, Alyssa our Location Scout, Mark our Second Unit Director, Paul our Special Makeup Effects Director, 